Hi everyone. I hope that you are well. I trust that you've had a good week. I know that there are some of you who are listening to this who haven't been able to attend our in-person services in months. And I just want you to know that we're thinking of you. We're missing you. We do understand that you can't be with us. But I want you to know that we're thinking of you and praying for you, especially in our in-service person this week. We continue with our sermon series on spiritual disciplines entitled Habits for Wholeness. So far in this series, we've examined the habits of silence and solitude, Bible reading and prayer. And today I'd like us to have a look at a spiritual discipline that is largely overlooked in the Christian church. I haven't heard too many sermons on this topic. I haven't preached many sermons on this topic. And I freely, although ashamedly, admit that this is not a spiritual discipline with which I am very familiar. Today I'd like us to look at the spiritual discipline of fasting. As with all the spiritual disciplines that we've looked at in our series, there's an awful lot to say on the subject. But let's begin where we left off last time in Matthew chapter 6. Remember that Matthew chapters 5 to 7 records Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus moves to the subject of our outward acts of righteousness. In other words, our religious duties to God. He begins by saying, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. He then speaks about how we are to give in secret, how we are to pray in secret, the verses that we looked at last time. And then immediately after speaking about prayer, he says this, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Probably the scariest words in that passage are the three little words, when you fast. We all know that we are expected to pray when you pray. We all know that we're expected to give when you give, but we possibly didn't realize that Jesus expects that there are times when we will fast, when you fast. Fasting isn't something that we hear too much about in our modern world, although it's not completely foreign to us. We know that at the moment, devout Muslims are marking the month of Ramadan, where they don't eat or drink anything between sunrise and sunset. Uh, the Baha'i faith, Buddhism, Hinduism, also all practice fasting. You may also be aware that there is a dieting fad at the moment called intermittent fasting, where folks skip a meal here and there in order to lose weight. So this concept of fasting is not completely unfamiliar to us, and it would have been something very familiar to Jesus' first hearers. The Jewish nation had a long history and tradition of fasting, which didn't end with the coming of Jesus, but continued on into the New Testament church. 
So let me begin by giving a bit of a biblical overview of fasting before we look at the more personal implications and applications to our own lives. This will be a condensed overview, but let's start by looking at the four main types of fasting that are recorded in Scripture. Firstly, there was what we might term conventional fasting. A conventional standard fast involved giving up just food for a certain period of time. In his gospel, Matthew tells us that right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Matthew doesn't say that Jesus was hungry and thirsty, by which we infer that he only gave up food during that time. But certainly a normal fast involved the giving up of just food. Secondly, the Bible also records some people engaging in an absolute fast. So, for example, in Ezra chapter 10, we read that the exiles who return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity go off and marry foreign women who will lead them away from God. And so we read that for a period of time, Ezra ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Thirdly, the Bible records what we might call partial fasts. This is where a person didn't give up all food, but just certain foods. So, for example, we read in Daniel chapter 10, At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. And then fourthly, there is biblical precedent for giving up other things besides food in order to focus on God. So other than food fasts. Paul writes to married couples in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and says, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So a conventional fast, giving up food only, an absolute fast, giving up food and water, a partial fast, giving up certain types of food, and then giving up other things apart from food. Now, as we read about those types of fast, you would have also noticed some of the reasons that people fasted. And this is a very important point that we'll pick up on again later. Fasting always had a particular purpose. Some Christians just skip a meal here and there and don't find it particularly helpful, but that is because they failed to realize that fasting is always for a particular purpose. So let's look at some of the reasons that people fasted in the Bible. Often, fasting was associated with grieving. It was the way that people mourned in that culture. So, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read how Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle, and David and his men mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. 
Those of you who have experienced grief know that that's a pretty normal reaction. You just don't feel like eating. Secondly, sometimes people fasted because they were mourning over their sin or the sin of others, as we saw in the example of Ezra a few moments ago. Every Israelite would fast on the Day of Atonement. That was the day on which a sacrifice was made to cover the sins of the Israelites for that particular year. Related to that, thirdly, you also have people fasting to show that they are serious about turning away from their sin. So, for example, in the book of Jonah, we read that after Jonah has preached a message of God's judgment on the Ninevites, the Ninevites believed God and proclaimed a fast. And this was the proclamation in chapter 3 and verse 7. The king writes, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish, which is indeed what happens. Fourthly, we also have people fasting because they were asking something in particular of God, maybe for his protection or for his guidance. So again, in the book of Ezra, when Ezra and some of the Israelites are returning to the land of Israel from Babylon, Ezra tells us in chapter 8, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. In Acts chapter 13, we read that in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, also known as Paul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You will notice that in all of the examples that we've looked at so far, Prayer and fasting are linked. And this is an important fifth point to notice. Let me mention a number, another example of this. Remember when Joseph and Mary go and present Jesus at the temple when he is just a few weeks old, they're greeted by Simeon and Anna, who both recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Luke tells us about this elderly lady that Anna never left the temple, but worshipped God night and day, fasting and praying. This is an important reference because here in a nutshell we see what fasting is. One gives up food or certain types of food or something else entirely, and one then uses the time that you would have been eating or whatever to focus on God, to worship and pray. And then finally, in this biblical overview, it's important to see how Jesus transforms our understanding of fasting. Although Jesus began his earthly ministry by spending 40 days fasting, 
Although he often withdrew to lonely places to be alone with his father, although when he spoke with the woman of Samaria, he didn't have time for lunch, he wasn't known to be someone who fasted often. His enemies called him a glutton and a drunkard. He wasn't a drunkard, but he certainly did enjoy a good party. In fact, some of the disciples of John the Baptist, someone who was well known for living out in the desert and surviving on locusts and wild honey, some of his disciples were concerned enough about Jesus' reputation to come and ask him about it directly. In Matthew chapter 9 we read, Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus is making a very significant claim here because in the Old Testament, God was Israel's bridegroom. And Jesus is saying, while I am here, while God is with his people, there is rejoicing and feasting. But when I'm taken away, then my followers will fast. And why do they fast? Because Jesus has been taken from them and they long for him. Which is another important piece in the puzzle of fasting. We'll come back to it in a moment. Fasting is fundamentally longing for God more than food or drink or anything else. It's also good to remind ourselves that when our bridegroom returns and we are again with him eternally, then there will be a feast. The book of Revelation speaks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so fasting is something temporary until we feast with Jesus eternally. Now, hopefully that brief overview has taught us a few things about fasting already. But let's move on and ask the question, what does fasting mean for us? What does it do for us or in us? Let me say two things right at the beginning. Two things that fasting is not. These are vital. Firstly, fasting is not a way to make us acceptable to God. Remember that in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a story about two men who went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed and, among other things, told God that he fasted twice a week and yet he did not go home in a right relationship with God. There is nothing that I could ever do to make God love me any more, and nothing that I can do that would ever make God love me any less. I am not made right with God by my own effort. I am made right with God through the death of Jesus on the cross for my sins. The Bible is very clear on this. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says this in chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. All of the spiritual disciplines, fasting, prayer, Bible study, church attendance, are not the route to salvation, but rather are the fruit of salvation, an expression of our genuine love for God in response to all that he has done for us. 
And the second thing that fasting is not. Fasting is not a way to manipulate God, to twist God's arm into doing something for me. Fasting is not some kind of cosmic hunger strike. All right, well, I won't eat until God answers me. Equally, fasting is not even a technique to try and get things from God. So those are two things that fasting is not. But let's go on then and explore what fasting is, what it does in us and for us. We've looked at some of these already, but they bear repeating. Firstly and most importantly, Christian fasting means focusing our hearts on God. We skip a meal or a movie or a chocolate bar or a cell phone and use the time to focus on God instead. Just think about it for a moment. How many of us have ever worked through lunch? How many of us have ever skipped a meal because we were on holiday and having a good time on the beach? How many of us have got up really early to watch a rugby game on television or to go off on an outing? How many of us have skipped a movie on television to meet a friend for coffee? We don't mind giving up food or sleep or money or television to spend on recreation. So why not skip it occasionally to spend time with God, to focus on him? Sometimes we will just want to spend extra time with God, but sometimes we may have a specific purpose in leaving food to spend time with God. Perhaps I want to express grief over my sin. I may want to express repentance and return to God, to overcome temptation. We'll look at that in a moment. To express love and worship of God, to seek God's guidance in a particular matter to seek deliverance or protection, to pray for someone who is sick, to express concern for the work of God, to pray particularly for the ministries of our church, to pray for our missionaries, to pray for countries in our world where the gospel is not preached or unknown. And when we have a specific purpose, then fasting does two things. Firstly, fasting a meal means that I free up the half hour where I would have been eating to spend time praying to God. And secondly, the hunger pangs that occur throughout the rest of the day keep reminding me of my purpose. Just to say that while we may have a particular purpose in meeting with God, God may sometimes have a few things on his heart too. In the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, we read how after the Israelites have returned from exile in Babylon, a delegation come and ask the priests and the prophets, should we fast in the fifth month as we have done for so many years? And this is how God responds. Ask all these people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? This is what the Lord Almighty says, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your heart do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I can't fast on the one hand 
and then live like I want on the other. True fasting means meeting with God and then doing the things he calls me to do, having concern for the people that he is concerned for. Secondly, fasting is a way of acknowledging our dependence on God. Just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Skipping a meal reminds me that all my meals and everything that I am and have comes from the hand of God. And I think that so often we forget this. Much of our life revolves around food. We spend so much time shopping for food, preparing food, cooking food, eating food, cleaning up after eating food. It takes up so much of our lives. And yet how much time do we spend thanking God for our food? 30 seconds. The time that we spend with food is totally disproportionate to the amount of time that we spend with God. And skipping a meal reminds me that my food comes from God. We don't have time to explore this in detail now, but skipping a meal now and then can also remind me that there are hundreds of thousands of people in South Africa who skip meals every day, not because they choose to, but because they are poor and have nothing to eat. Thirdly, fasting tests our priorities. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Last week in our in-person service, we sang a song based on Psalm 42. We confidently sang out, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. I love you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. Fasting puts those words to the test. Do I love God enough to skip a meal, to spend time with him? Do I seek first his kingdom and righteousness above what I'm going to have for my next meal? In fasting, we remind ourselves that we are to desire God more than the good gifts that God gives us. Fasting helps me to speak the words of Psalm 73 truthfully. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Fourthly, fasting teaches us something about our desires. Our desire for food is a very natural human desire. We'll die without food. But food can very easily take over our lives in negative ways. And many other human needs, our need for sex or money or acceptance, can also become twisted and sinful. 
In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul speaks about people who are enemies of Christ, and he gives a couple of characteristics of these folk. He says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Paul speaks about people whose God is their gut. They just go along unthinkingly with every human desire. They are controlled by their desires. And in fasting, we give up a natural desire to remind ourselves that we are not just to be led by our desires, but to be led by God. In fasting, then, we are strengthening the spiritual muscles that help us to say no to our desires. And that can help us in many other areas of our Christian lives too. Saying no to anger, saying no to retaliation, saying no to envy, saying no to lust. And linked to this, we can say fifthly that fasting helps us to overcome temptation. But not necessarily in the way we might think. Remember that fasting isn't just about giving up food. It's giving up food in order to meet with God. It is going hungry for a while in order to cultivate a hunger for God. We overcome temptation as Christians not so much by trying to suppress our sinful desires and waging war on them, although there is an element of that. We overcome temptation as Christians by replacing our sinful desires with a much greater desire, a desire for God. C.S. Lewis once preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And in the sermon he said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's really what our temptations and addictions are, playing with a stick in the mud next to a dirty stream of stinking water rather than experiencing a holiday by the sea with God, finding satisfaction in God alone. Pastor John Piper has a little phrase that he often uses in his books and sermons. He says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's so much more that could be said on the subject of fasting, but hopefully we've looked at enough today to stimulate us to godly thinking. Let me just say in closing that there are a couple of equal and opposite dangers for us going forward. The first danger would be legalism. It's the danger of saying, I want to be a spiritual person. And so I'll fast once a month. And so every month I fast for a day and I feel horribly guilty if I don't do it that month. And after a while of regularly doing it, I start to feel pretty good about myself. And it's not too long before I start to think, you know, he doesn't fast. 
He's obviously not as close to God as I am. His life would be so much better if only he fasted. Legalism is terrible. It gives birth to self-righteousness, to the idea that I can make myself more presentable to God. And it also gives birth to pride. I'm better than others. If fasting leads you down that road, then better not fast at all. Rather eat chocolate and deep fat fried foods. It's not about me becoming a more spiritual person, but rather having a simple, genuine desire for God. But the opposite error that I think we could easily fall into here would be to say, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Fasting went out with the monks. I'm not a hermit. Get real. Fasting just isn't a modern 21st century thing to do. I think that that would be a mistake. As one writer puts it, fasting is a tool too powerful to leave endlessly on the shelf collecting dust. I think that each of us needs to pray about this and seek God's leading and think about what fasting would look like for us individually and personally. Maybe it would mean skipping a meal occasionally. Some folk aren't able to do that due to medical reasons, but maybe it would be something else. Giving up WhatsApp for a day or social media for a day, giving up novels for a week to read through one of the Gospels. But let's pray and ask that God would help us to find ways to develop a hunger and thirst for him. Pastor John Piper has this to say in this regard. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. May God grant that in this week that lies ahead, God would be glorified in us as we become more and more supremely satisfied in him. If you'd like to read more about the spiritual discipline of fasting, Richard Foster has an excellent chapter on the topic in his book, Celebration of Discipline. It's got some very helpful practical suggestions. And then John Piper has written an extremely challenging book on fasting called A Hunger for God. Uh, the book is freely available from his website, desiringgod.org. If you go to the website and navigate to the book section and then look for A Hunger for God, you'll find that you can either download it uh, for free or you can pay for it if you'd like to make a contribution. May God bless you in this week that lies ahead.